The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. For me personally, the summer of 1983 was a a critical summer in my development as a Christian. The fall of 82, I gave my life to Christ through the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ at MIT. And then I went on a summer project at Hampton Beach uh, the following summer, summer of 83. And so the summer of 83, I was uh, doing beach evangelism. I learned how to do contact evangelism that summer. We read a book by David Bryant called In the Gap. And so I learned about missions, about praying for unreached people groups and was aware, became aware of the missionary call of Christ on my life. I learned to work at a job, a secular job as a Christian and be able to put my faith into practice in some challenging work situations. So that was the summer I did all that. That was also the summer I almost died in the Atlantic Ocean. Funny now, but it wasn't funny then. Uh, there was a, a big storm, not quite a hurricane, but it whipped the ocean into a, into a frenzy. And it looked like, like Hawaii, like the pipeline, Waikiki Beach, something like that. And I should have known something. My friend Chaz Mortensen and I, we should have known something that in the middle of the summer, middle of the week, there was not a single person swimming. We should have thought something at that point. There's no one swimming here today, except the two of us, as we did some incredible, awesome body surfing. Best of my life. Almost paid for it with my life, but the best of my life. And we were just riding these waves in, and just one wave after another, and just having a great time, until I noticed that we were getting pulled gradually and inexorably out to sea. Much further along and further down the beach than when we started. And I said, "Uh uh-oh. And I called over to Chaz and I said, we need to start going back in. And he had already seen that danger. We were in some kind of a riptide. I don't know how long it took for us to get back to the beach. I have no idea. Felt like an hour, probably is like 10 minutes. But we rode a wave in and then swam like crazy to fight the current. And then rode the next wave in. And this way, in little steps, we finally made it back to the beach. Exhausted. And this became, in the years that followed, a picture to me, of the issue that's in front of us in the text today. And that is the powerful forces on my soul causing me to drift away from Jesus. And the author in Hebrews uh, chapter 2 and verse 1 says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Is it possible to drift little by little further and further away from an active, healthy, vibrant walk with Christ? Our hearts becoming gradually hardened to the things of God and the dangers of sin. The book of Hebrews says not only is it possible, but it's the great danger of our Christian lives. In my opinion, the whole book was written as a warning to us who are in the church to look after our souls in our walk with Christ. And so here we have very plainly and clearly the first of several significant warnings in the book of Hebrews to us as Christians. And what's in front of us as we look at this is the greatness of our salvation. Remember that the central message of the book of Hebrews is that a superior mediator, Jesus Christ, greater than all other mediators, greater than all other figures in Old Testament history, this great figure, Jesus Christ, has brought us a superior covenant, the new covenant, 
which results in a superior life, a life of complete forgiveness for sins and a fruitfulness before God, of free access into the very throne room of God, a better life. This is what what we have in the new covenant. And so it talks in verse 3 about such a great salvation. Such a great salvation. Now, I think in our culture the word great is used too much. We have it all the time. I mean, it's used for everything. It's used for natural features like the Great Lakes or the Great Barrier Reef or the Great White Shark. In history, there's uh, Alexander the Great and the Great War, World War I. In literature, you have Great Gatsby and Great Expectations, which I didn't think were so great, but I got through that book. Somehow survived. Someone thought they were great. Dickens, I guess. But we have that word all the time. In commercial life, you can go for a great haircut to great clips. <laughs> or you can search on Google to find great wedding gifts or a great vacation spot. Perhaps in no aspect of American life is the word so overused as in sports. The hundred greatest baseball players of all time or Muhammad Ali calling himself the greatest of all times. Once I was watching a, a basketball game in which a uh, a star player scored a lot of points and won in the fourth quarter and won a key basketball game. And the announcer said, you're watching what true greatness is all about. And I, as a Christian, I was offended by that. I was watching a basketball game. If you want to know what true greatness is all about, look to the cross. Look to Jesus Christ. To this great salvation. The word great is overblown in our lives. But it is actually an understatement when it comes to our salvation. Amen? It is such a great salvation that we have. And that's what we have before us in verse 3. We've already seen the greatness of the Savior. It really begins with just the greatness of Jesus. Although it does mention that He provided purification for sins, it really just focuses on just how great He is as the second person of the Trinity. Verse 1 of our passage says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. And the therefore points us back to the 14 verses of the first chapter because Jesus is so great because of all we've seen of Jesus, these truths. We have a great salvation given by an infinitely great Savior. Jesus, the final word, God's final word to the human race. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He's spoken to us in His Son, Jesus The final word of God, greater than all the prophets. He is the heir of all things. And through Him, God made the universe. And He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. He sustains all things by His powerful word. He is the one who provided purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so for the rest of the chapter, the author compares Him to the angels. And He's greater than all the angels. He's inherited a name greater than theirs. Angels are merely servants of God's people, servants of God. But Jesus, the Son, is God on His throne. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Jesus is the one who will roll up the present universe like a garment and throw them away, but will establish the new heavens and the new earth. How great is this person of Jesus Christ? And He is the one that brings us a great salvation, an infinitely great answer to the problem of sin. 
Hebrews 1.3, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down, his work finished. We'll talk more about that later in the book of Hebrews. But a finished work, once for all, sat down at the right hand of God. Sin's power over us is broken by our rescue, our transfer from Satan's dark kingdom into the kingdom of Jesus. Sin's practice gradually being eradicated in our lives by the indwelling spirit and by the instruction of the word, like this very morning. So little by little, we're learning new habits of righteousness and, and unlearning old habits of wickedness and sin. And one day, in glorification, it will all be finished. And we'll be done with sin forever. And we'll be done with these mortal bodies forever. We'll be in resurrection bodies, surrounded by glorious beings and worshiping a glorious God. That's a great salvation, friends. Magnificent salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification. How marvelous is that? This is our great salvation. But it also arouses from us or around us great enemies. Satan is the enemy of our souls, the enemy of our salvation. And the world system that he has set up attacks us spiritually every day. Makes it hard for us to make progress in the Christian life. And our own internal sin nature, the enemy within the walls, betraying us day after day. Though in our minds we love God's law, but in our flesh we yearn to rebel against Him. So these enemies make it so very, very difficult for us in our salvation. So we have a great danger, and it's listed right here in verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So we come to this potent image of drifting away. I can tell you as a pastor, there are few things sadder than this, and that's watching somebody drift away spiritually. It's of the essence of pastoral ministry. It's grievous to me. I've seen it more times than I can count. How many people were doing well at one point and then give it a few years or even a few months, and they're not doing well anymore? And, you know, you try to reach out, you, you try to persuade them, you meet with them, you pray for them, you do all these kinds of things, but still they drift away. Reminds me of that problem uh, in the infant stages of, a, of an infant. Failure to thrive. It's not gaining weight. It's, there's no direct problem, it seems, but it's just anemic. It's not, not thriving and it just gets weaker and weaker until finally it dies. And you just see it happen and there's nothing, it seems, that you can do to stop it. It's very sad and it's happened, we've seen it again and again. So we have this image here of drifting away. The Greek word is a picture of a, of a kind of a flowing system like a river, if you could imagine, and you, it, with a strong current and you could throw a twig out and the current just causes it to just float away from you very, very quickly. The image I get is of a sailboat that's not properly moored to the dock out in the ocean and... Uh, you know, the, the, the rope is just laying across. Somebody got distracted, you know. They didn't tie it to the, to, you know, they didn't moor it well. And, you know, the, the, the little ebbs and flows, the rising and falling of the, of, the, of the little chop in the wave doesn't make much of an impact immediately. Wouldn't even notice. Came back in five minutes. If you were attentive, you might notice that the rope had slid a little bit down the dock. Been a little bit of movement, but not much. But if you were to go away and come back in 10 hours, rising and falling of the tide and all that, the boat is gone. It's just gone. So there's a sense of something drifting away. There are actually two different ways to translate this verse, and it depends on which translation you have. 
NIV has the sense of something drifting away, someone drifting away from Christ. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So here's Jesus and we're just drifting further and further and further away from Jesus. KJV turns it around and says, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip from us. So it's a matter of perspective. But I have the feeling that Christ and the gospel are there and they're not moving. In any case, we're the ones moving further and further away. But from the perspective, these things that we once cherished are drifting away from us. So the second image is not one of a sailboat. I get one, an, an image of, of, a, of an earthquake victim that's down in the basement of a crushed building like in Port-au-Prince. And they can't move. And they've received a number of small cuts and wounds which could be attended to if they were able to move and get some treatment, but they're pinned, they're like paralyzed under some, some pilings or some, some cinder blocks and they just can't move. And they're watching themselves bleed out. And that lifeblood flowing, flowing, flowing away from them, out of their arm or leg until they're dead. Either way, you see the danger here. Either something drifting away from you or you drifting away from Christ. Either way, it's a, it's a deadly problem. And so these things that we have heard, it mentions in verse 1, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard or the things which we have heard are the gospel truths about Christ. It's the doctrine of the gospel. Biblical doctrine. The idea is that we should let, that we should be careful not to let these precious truths bleed out of our lives little by little so that they are gone from us. We've lost them. Joshua 1.8 says positively, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. So it's just like the, the, the word just bleeding out and it's gone. So this is a great danger, friends. It's a great danger. And I've seen it again and again. I yearn. I am, I'm pleading with you to get your attention here. I want you to look to yourselves. I want you to look in the mirror of the Word and say, am I drifting from Christ? Is there evidence that I'm drifting from Jesus? Am I further away from Him than I was a year ago? Am I, am I less zealous for Him than I was a, a year ago? What is the direction of my life? I want you to look at yourselves through the mirror of the Word. That's what I want. And I'm going to do the same myself. The book of Hebrews, as I mentioned, is the ultimate warning book of the Bible. And the warnings are going to get more severe as we go on in the book of Hebrews. great danger here is for you to blow it off. Say, it'll never happen to me. I don't need to hear this. Besides, I believe in once saved, always saved. I believe in that and so I don't think I need to heed these warnings in the book of Hebrews. It doesn't apply to me. As a matter of fact, one very well-known and ordinarily reliable teacher of the Word of God took this approach, even on this passage. He said this, to whom is this warning directed? It cannot be directed to Christians, he wrote. They can never be in danger of neglecting salvation since they already have it. They can neglect growth and discipleship, but they cannot neglect salvation. Friends, I hope you're well enough trained to know that salvation comes to you in stages. We don't have it all yet. And if we're in the middle stage called sanctification... Our sense of assurance and certitude that we began with justification is based on how sanctification is going. And if sin is just ravaging your life, how do you know you're justified? 
If you're living like a slave to sin, how can you know? I tell you, if you're not growing, you're drifting. If you're not growing, you're drifting. You're going to, keep, you're going to make progress toward Christ-likeness every day or you're going to drift. Now, this man that I referred to, if I told you his name, you'd know it, but I won't say it. But I tell you that if you take that approach to Hebrews, you'll miss the whole point of the whole book. It's written to Christians because we need the warnings. The warnings accomplish the final salvation. And we Christians, we do well to heed the warnings and take them seriously and not blow them off. So if you think drifting away from Christ can never happen to you, beware. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. If you think you're standing firm, take heed lest you fall. What does take heed mean except... How about read the book of Hebrews and take its warning seriously? Take heed. That's what it says. Now, what causes this drifting? Well, the immediate answer right in the verse is neglect of the gospel. Neglect of the gospel. So the opposite. You know, we have to pay more careful attention. That's the remedy. We'll get to that. So the opposite is the truth. The one who neglects the gospel is the one who's drifting away. Or in verse 3, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? It's a sense of ignoring the things of the soul. So it certainly could refer to someone who's heard the claims of the gospel but has not yet made a commitment to Christ. But I don't think that's the home base of these verses. He speaks in this language, we must pay more careful than what we have heard, our great salvation. He's speaking like one of the group. And so what causes it? Well, I'm going to say this later and develop it a little bit later, but there is a voluntary drifting and there's an involuntary drifting. Involuntary drifting is just you get wrapped up with the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. You're just not aware of what's happening and little by little by little, you're just not where you used to be. You're not making an active choice at that moment, I'm going to turn my back on Jesus. But you are making little choices to not follow Christ. Little choices. And that's where it becomes voluntary. Hebrews 3.13 speaks of the hardening process due to sin's deceitfulness. We'll get to that next chapter, but sin is deceitful. It's not honest with us. And it's not telling us everywhere that it's at work in our lives. We're not always aware. And so there's this hardening. What is the hardening? Well, the opposite is a yieldedness, right? A soft heart. A yielded spirit. So when the Holy Spirit speaks to you through the Word, as it says in Hebrews 3, 7 and 8, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. So it's like you, you, you hear him speak and he's prompting you and telling you what to do and you are digging in your heels. You're being stiff-necked like the Jews in the Old Testament. You're not yielded to him. Your heart is hard like Pharaoh. You're not yielding to what God's saying. And sin does that. It has the power to harden your heart. Well, what are some tragic milestones along the way of someone drifting from Jesus? When I was out in the Atlantic Ocean, I started noticing the hotel where we first... Were. We wouldn't go to that hotel, but that's where we went in and started swimming. And it was diagonal down the beach. That was a marker. And I knew that we had drifted a lot at that point. What are the, what are the markers? Well, how about a loss of that initial joy over salvation? Remember in the parable of the hidden treasure? In his joy, he hides a treasure and then sells everything that he has. I mean, anything, everything for Jesus. That's how it is, the devotion of those early 
times with Jesus and you love Him so much and you, and you want to worship Him and you want to follow Him and you're just so excited. But then there's a loss of that. Not so excited. Not so yearning to be with Jesus. Uh, you know, not so thrilled over the Word. Not so excited about corporate worship. Not so thrilled to sing hymns or spiritual songs like you used to. And with that comes a gradual lessening of spiritual disciplines, not spending as much time in prayer, not meeting as faithfully uh, with the Lord in your quiet time, not reading as much, hurrying through it. And, And then a gradual lowering of standards of personal holiness. And why? Because your hungry heart wants to be happy, looking for something. And Jesus isn't doing it for you as much anymore. So you start to, start to look toward the world, start to look to other things. And so you start to lower your standards on holiness so you can get some things from the world. Growing hunger and thirst then for worldly pleasures and developing of habits in that direction. And with that, of course, a gradual lessening of spiritual disciplines correspondingly. And then irritation with spiritual disciplines starts to creep in. What a burden, you say, like in the book of Malachi, that you have to go do this, you have to go to church, or you have to pray, or do these disciplined things. And it starts to feel like a burden to you. Not so eager to do it. And and along with that comes a critical spirit to those that probably are doing better than you spiritually. So excited, the new converts, or even old ones that have walked well with the Lord. and, And you just don't like being around them. They kind of... Well, they kind of annoy you, kind of irritate you a bit. And it starts to become a burden to just be with them. And so Sunday morning isn't something you're really thrilled about. Start to be jealous of those people you pass on Sunday morning. They're out there unconcerned about church attendance. Oh, that I were free. Play golf like that guy or garden like that woman. I mean... And that these thoughts start creeping in. And, and at that point, you know, you're pretty much ripe for changing habits on, on worship attendance. Going from 52 times a year to 50 to 48 to 46. And it starts to... You're bleeding out. You don't even know it's happening. But little by little, you're drifting. You're not where you used to be. Along with that comes a growing irritability in life in general. You're not as characterized by the fruit of the Spirit anymore. Those worldly things are not really making you happy. Maybe you think if I do a little more of them, they'll make me happy. But this level hasn't made me happy. And so fruit of the Spirit does not really characterize you much. And you have spasms of conviction. Your conscience smites you. You make some some changes. You turn over a new leaf a little bit. But it isn't really availing because you haven't gone to the root of the issue. Those are some markers along the way. And when might it happen? Anytime. Times of prosperity, when things are going well, you can start drifting. Times of struggle when there's an illness in the family or might be persecution or things going on. That can be a time when you start drifting away. Satan's at it all the time. Times of temptation are times of drifting away. All right, so what is the remedy? Verse 1, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. As I said, what we have heard is the gospel. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. It's what God is speaking. It's what we've heard. The Word of God, the Gospel. Jesus is the Gospel and He is God's final Word to the human race. And, and I would say more specifically, the words of the Gospel. Remember, Romans 10, 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And so your faith came initially 
by hearing with faith, hearing the word with faith. And so your faith then gets bolstered and strengthened by hearing the word with faith. Focus on what you have heard. It is by hearing the word that your faith is renewed and given a new, a new feast so it gets vibrant and strong again. It's the word. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you are taught. So Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says, the way you started is the way you make progress. It's Christ, it's the word of the cross, it's taking it in, hearing with faith. That's how you make progress. And it says we must pay attention. The remedy is paying attention. Consider, give full heed to what's going on. Consider who's speaking to you, God. Consider carefully the matter of this message, the gravity of it, the weight of it. Allow the gospel's seriousness and power to rest heavily on your mind. The opposite of following this advice would be to look on it as a light thing. Ignore it. Blow it off. And it says, actually, we must pay literally more excellent attention to what we've heard. Pay more excellent attention. It, it, It intensifies it. Consider the matter of eternity, of heaven and hell. Consider the word of God and all of its power, its truth, its demands, its promises. Consider Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, did signs and wonders and miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, preached like no man had ever preached, so much that those who were sent to arrest him came back and said, no one ever spoke like this man. This is the one who walked on water, who stilled the waves with his, with his voice, who fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, who raised Lazarus from the dead on the fourth day. This is the one who is our substitute, who agreed in the Garden of Gethsemane to drink hell for you and me and went and did it, who died on the cross, whose blood was shed, who stood in our place under the wrath of God and then died. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead. Consider these things. And for 40 days, he was with the church, instructing and teaching them. And then he ascended to heaven and now sits at the right hand of God Almighty. At that place, he is interceding for you every day, praying for you. And from that place, he will come back to judge the living and the dead. Consider these things. Pay more careful attention to them. Get a sense of uh, a proper appraisal of them. Have you ever heard of Christie's of London? It's an art appraisal house. And they have some of these famous art auctions. All-time, you know, Ming vase sold for a high price at Christie's. You know, well, who is Christie? Well, what, what they are, they hire the best art appraisers in the world for like something like 60 different categories. It's amazing. I mean, antique Swiss pocket watches. Christie's is your place. I mean, the experts in the world are there. Or Rembrandt paintings. In order to develop that kind of expertise and appraisal, you have to know the history of the art, the history of the individual, like Rembrandt, you're studying. You can look at something and know right away if it's a forgery. But more than that, you can say, this is definitely Rembrandt, but not one of his better pieces. Why? Well, this is what we see. We need to be appraisers of the gospel. Not judges or critics of it. I'm not saying that, but just students of it. Pay more excellent attention to what you've heard. Diligently study so that you do not drift away. And we have an obligation here, friends, to take this remedy. We must pay more careful attention, therefore. We must because Jesus is great. That's what the therefore means to me. Because of the greatness of Jesus, we must pay more careful attention to what we have heard. It's an obligation. And we have to take this remedy. We have to take this remedy. 
I remember when we were in Haiti, um, one of the doctors gave a sick woman a prescription to be taken down to the pharmacy. And um, she took that prescription and rolled it up and put it in an amulet and put it around her neck. Of course, you know, Haiti is rife with voodoo and, you know, all kinds of mystical practices. But several days later, she came back and she wasn't any better. Imagine our surprise when we found out that she hadn't taken the written prescription down to the pharmacy to get the medication she needed. And even that wouldn't have been enough. She needed to take them. So here's your prescription. This is what you need to do to not drift away. But you need to take the prescription. Don't write it on a strip of paper and put it around your neck. You need to actually do what it says. Go home this afternoon and pay more careful attention to what you've heard. Do it again tomorrow until you know that you're not drifting. And why? Because God told us how great this salvation is that was first proclaimed to us by the Lord. And God testified to it, it says, by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Jesus was the first proclaimer of this gospel. He stood up at the synagogue in Nazareth. And they found that scroll in Isaiah where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted and to heal all those that are sick in Zion to rescue the captives. And he said, today in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. Jesus Christ preached this gospel first. And then God testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles. He said, this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Those are the apostles, I believe. And so the apostles heard Jesus. And then after Jesus ascended into heaven, then they testified concerning it. It says in 1 John 1, that which we have, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. So the apostles were eyewitnesses and, they, and they, they handled these holy things and they were with Jesus and ate with him and saw him and saw him in his resurrection. And then they proclaimed. God testified by signs and wonders and various miracles. God the Father endued Christ with more wonder-working power than anyone else in history. Jesus did a river of miracles showing the worth and value of the salvation that he came to bring. The blind saw, the lame walked, those who had leprosy were cured, the deaf heard, the dead were raised, the good news was preached to the poor. Those miracles accredited Jesus, testified to it. And so it was also with the apostles. They were able to do great signs and wonders. Acts 2.43 says, everyone was filled with awe and many signs and wonders, miraculous signs were done by the apostles. In Acts 4, or Acts 3, Peter and John healed a lame man at the temple gate called Beautiful. Acts 4, they prayed for power to do more miracles and more healings. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders. Acts 5, again, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all of these serve to testify to the gospel that it's true. It's coming from God. This is really God testifying through Jesus and through the apostles that this is the true salvation message. And therefore, to ignore it or to drift away from it is worthy of great punishment. And so the author gives us a, a note of punishment here. Look at verse 2 and 3. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, 
and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, then how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The Old Covenant had its penalties for disobedience. The Old Covenant, the message spoken by angels, is the Old Covenant. And if you broke the Mosaic Law, in many cases you died. The murderer was to be put to death. The adulterer was to be put to death. The blasphemer was to be put to death. The Sabbath Sabbath breaker was to be put to death. It was just the, the, the death knell that came from the law. It ministered death. It was a terrifying thing. The author deals with it later in Hebrews 12. He says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, Sinai, and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. Well, he's saying, the author's saying, the old covenant was binding. You couldn't blow it off. And it had death penalty connected with it. How much greater then are we worthy of punishment if we neglect such a great salvation, the new covenant, in Jesus? That's physical death. We're dealing here with eternal death. We're dealing with the issue of hell. Eternity apart from God. The law of Moses didn't consign anyone to hell. It just killed them physically. But failure to come to Christ results in eternity in hell. And so, in summation, we must pay more careful attention to the gospel message about Christ so that we do not drift away from Him. If we drift away, the punishment is more severe than we can possibly imagine. But paying more excellent attention to the gospel is the remedy to this spiritual sickness. So application, first and foremost, all I can say is come to Christ. could be that God sovereignly brought you here and you have never made a commitment to Christ. It's one thing to drift away from Christ. It's another thing never to have come. And it could be that God brought you for such a time as this to hear the gospel. You've heard of Christ crucified now. Now I'm making a direct appeal to you. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and you'll find full forgiveness for your sins. You'll find everything you need at the cross. You'll find a welcome. God the Father, like the father of the prodigal son, standing at the foot of the driveway saying, Welcome home. And all of your sins will be forgiven. Purification for sin, available through the blood of Jesus. But I'm mindful of the fact that most of you who have come here today would call yourselves Christians. And that's why I say that this message is for you. Please don't drift away from Jesus. Please grow. Please feed your souls every day on the Word of God. Please keep coming to church. And if you should move to another place, then find a good church and go to that church. And I'm not getting legalistic here on church attendance. I know that there are some Sundays that, you know, you physically can't be there. I understand that. I'm just asking, when you don't go to church, what is the reason? Look at the reason. Test your hearts and see. And look at those milestones I listed. Are they happening to you? Are you drifting? Are you further from Jesus than you were five years ago, ten years ago, five months ago? And if so, then... Repent, as it says in, in, in the letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. Turn around. You've forsaken your first love. Turn around. Repent and do the things you did at first. Go back and have those quiet times again. Be excited for Christian fellowship. Look at the sins that are in your life that have drained your spiritual strength and put them to death. They're killing you. They're waging war against your soul, it says in the book of First Peter. Put them to death. And watch out for involuntary drifting. American lifestyle is a, is a busy life. I mean, the drumbeat 
Corey Tenboom said, Beware the barrenness of a busy life. Any of you able to testify to that? The barrenness of a busy life. Watch out for that. And finally, watch out for each other. See if anybody you know is drifting. It's not just the work of the elders, friends. We don't always know. Sometimes we're among the last to know. Shepherd each other. Love each other. Ask questions. How are you doing spiritually? Take responsibility for each other's spiritual health. We'll talk more about that, much more in chapter 3. But I'm just saying, please, notice each other and say, how are you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. Things going okay. Many of you do that so beautifully, but keep doing it. Close with me in prayer, if you will. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.